So here we are. We're we've returned once more. Looking glass forum. And we are dealing with some of the most difficult and consequential and heavyweight topics in, in really human history. Having to do with civilizational rise and fall of empires and kingdoms and the collapse of nations. Something we're dealing with presently. And the, the overarching concept of religion itself. The all-important power of faith in the human mind. And so we're going into this issue of that we've discussed before. It is, is a relatively dead letter as a concept presently in our modern era. There are still some little groups here and there. Apparently Michelle Bachman's church. There are groups out there, Protestant groups who still believe the fundamentals of their own gospel and their own doctrine. So as we go forward, we have to present this great controversy, this difficult, weighty subject matter of the issue of the Pope and the papacy itself. And when we say papacy, it's just a fancy word that really just means fatherhood. The fatherhood of Rome, right? The papacy, the papahood. The papa, right? That's what this, this all deals with. Is where did we get a papa priest, right? That's supposed to rule over all others over time. And when we get into this issue... We have to look at the long train of history, the, the Roman church. It, it doesn't surprise us that we have a church in Rome because we had a, a church in a Asia Minor that was established. And this is from all the preaching of Paul and, and the disciples you know, as they went around, especially Paul, to the various Gentiles or non-Jews of the world, the Greeks, etc. And as they're preaching all over the world, they're going to end up having a, a church in, in Pergamos, a church in Philadelphia, a church in a Smyrna, a church in Ephesus, the Ephesians. That's a famous letter and book of the Bible that Paul wrote to the Ephesians to encourage them in their faith. Surrounded by idols and Diana worship and Jupiter worship all around, idol worship all around. Thyatira and Sardis and Laodicea and etc. So those are just some of the main, the seven main churches that were established under the preaching of the gospel, they're really going to establish the dominion of the gospel throughout the world. So it shouldn't surprise us that we have a church of Rome over time. And of course, the church of Rome could be sober the development of the centuries when Rome would ultimately become a church and, and imperial structures and its religio-cultic power base and its geopolitical military weaponry would ultimately not entirely recede or just be destroyed, but they would be conflated with this idea of the, the powerful gospel message of Jesus Christ and him resurrected in Jerusalem. So over the course of time, the, the, the five great patriarchies would be Rome, Constantinople, Alexandria, Antioch, and Jerusalem. Those were originally the five great patriarchies, the five great churches, and the five great centers of, you know, the idea of a Christian church or established Christian faith. Eventually, the, the grand patriarchy of, of Rome, the supposed high priest, the hierophant, the Holy Father, which would come to find a way to rule over all these other patriarchies by one form or another, eventually the, the Roman imperial patriarchy thought that he himself ought to, to rule all of the other churches and all the other high priests. The high priest of, and the grand bishop of Antioch, for instance, or, or of Alexandria, or Constantinople. And, and look how Alexandria is really a reflection of Greek power in Egypt, because remember, great uh, Alexander the Great came and conquered the world. And he conquered Egypt. And uh, when he did that, he, he named one of the cities there after himself. Alexandria. Right? Great Alexander the Great, right? So he named himself Alexander. Of course, eventually a, a Christian church would be established there. And you would have the placement of the, the uh, grand bishop, the grand patriarch, would be established there in, in Alexandria. And you would have a, a great a grand bishop of, of Constantinople. 
And of course, you see Constantinople used to be called Byzantium, and it was the Byzantine Empire. Now, like Egypt, who was conquered by the Emperor of Rome, Constantine. And when Constantine uh, just captured Byzantium, he renamed it Constantinople. So you can see over the course of time there, there would be a patriarchy set up in Constantinople. And, the, and these were considered the great centers of Christian authority and civilization. But over the course of time, you would see that the, the grand patriarchy of Rome, the high priest of the Roman church, would eventually demand that he be taken the place of superiority over all the other bishops of the world. And so this process over centuries, so it isn't one, one emperor or one pope or one merger of the two, which is really Constantine. Constantine is really going to be the guy who's going to be the first person who's interested in, in making the imperial Roman seat of emperor. He's really interested in making that to be a center of religious power. And that's the same thing that Julius Caesar did. Julius Caesar crossed the political divide and, and, and you know, as the Pontifex Maximus, and he was a, a high priest and a religious authority at the same time as he was also a an emperor of the of the Roman Empire. So he was a, a civil emperor, and he was also religiously a high priest. That same kind of conjunction occurred again with Constantine, and of course that was really completed under Theodosius I, who came after Constantine. This would really become the establishment of the of the patriarchy of the religious the the religious high priest would take on attributes of imperial power. So this is something that the patriarch of Antioch and the patriarch of Alexandria and the patriarch of of Constantinople didn't necessarily have. They didn't necessarily have the the merging attributes of throne and altar together. And so as we go forward, we're going to begin to really discuss the, the sensitivity of the historical revelation and the emergence of the person of the Antichrist. And of course, today, there's a lot of confusion around that. If you listen to the, you know, the, the kind of talking heads, the bobbleheads that are, you know, so fully intellectually engaged on so many other facts, have relatively no intellectual or personal power to push back on the issues of this ubiquitous religious controversy that exists for over centuries. So, like we said, the establishment of the, the Antichrist is something that is going to take place very gradually with very, very many different men who are rising to the place of grand bishop or great leading patriarch. And, of course, when we, the world was divided up between the, the, the five great patriarchs, from that point on, you can see, historically, the establishment of the, the priestcraft of Rome setting out to diminish all the other patriarchies and to boost and grow the great Roman papacy to be the not only the, the authority and the religious empowerment over the other patriarchies and other churches, but to take total leadership and total headship over all other churches. The Roman church likes to say that it's 2,000 years old, and maybe it's, um, its church history goes back many centuries, but the establishment of the papacy as the grand head of all Christian religion, that, that was a process that lasted five, six, seven hundred years. So you're going to have this unbroken chain of succession, as we said, from the emperors of Rome, from Julius Caesar, with his title... Pontifex Maximus, or the Grand Hierophant, the Grand High Priest of the Babylonian Mystery Religion. That's where you get this idea of the Pontifex Maximus, or the Great Priest, or the Priest King. It's really what they what they should translate. The idea of the the, the All Powerful Priest King uh, was a new title that when Julius Caesar adopted it. He would become Pontifex Maximus, and then he would become Emperor of Rome, and, and this is a new title that would be passed down to Augustus, Caesar Augustus, Caesar Augustus, or Octavian, as he was known, was someone who would ultimately inherit this, this merger of imperial civil dominion and the esoteric rituals of the, of the Hierophant or the, the priest king, or the high priest, right? So 
And this is, of course, high priests of the religious pantheon of Rome, which was dedicated to the gods of Egypt and the gods of Thrace, or the gods of Babylon, or the gods of Greece, Jupiter, Mars, Saturn, Venus. These are the gods that the high priests, the priestcraft of Rome, are, are going to worship over time. And so you can see that when the advent of Jesus Christ would come, and he was standing in, in Jerusalem, here at the temple, the temple of Yahweh, the temple of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you can see that Jesus' his entire existence is a stance of faith against the ideas of the idea of worshiping the stars, or worshiping Saturn, or Venus, or Jupiter, or worshiping the Roman gods. So before they even get to the point where they're going to crucify him, you have to recognize that there is a contrast, conflict taking place religiously between the absolute religious dominion and pagan dominion of Rome and the ancient biblical and scriptural traditions that are coming out of Jerusalem with the Jews. And Jesus Christ being the high priest, if you want, of the Jews. So ultimately, you can see that Julius Caesar is going to be the original precursor and foundation upon which the papacy and ultimately the Antichrist is going to rest. So if we move up through time, we finally arrived to Constantine some three, 300 years later. Constantine is like Julius Caesar, he's the emperor of Rome, but also he's going to do something different. He's going to embrace the idea of Christian uh, religious beliefs after 300 years of brutal persecution. There's going to be left over a amalgamation of Egyptian and Babylonian priestcraft, and those so-called believers of the Christian tradition now 300 years old, America's not even 300 years old. So these Christians in, Constant, uh, in Constantinople, right, where Constantine is going to come to, to be, are going to be very different from the original first century churches, uh, first century believers and disciples who were all literally hunted to extinction. And these new Christians are going to be a little bit Gnostic in their ideas and writings and a little bit more leaning towards the idea of making peace with Rome and embracing Roman authority and Roman religious ideas. So that this, this new Christianity is going to be a compromise, a religio-cultic praxis, which has never been seen before and is ultimately going to become Roman Catholicism, which is going to be universal Romanism. And all you have to do to get universal Romanism is bring Jesus Christ into the pantheon of gods, of all the gods, right? That's what, that's what Rome did. That's what Rome had uh, Pax Romana, which is the Roman peace, because they had the pantheon of all the gods, and they universalized and codified all religious systems in the world and brought them into one universal praxis, right? So it didn't matter if you were from Egypt and you worshipped Isis and Ra, didn't matter if you had your ancestors have been from Babylon and you worship Bel and, and Ashtaroth, right? There's always the male and female counterpart gods. It's Diana and Jupiter, yada yada, right? So it's always the, the, the male-female duality, the black-white dualistic terminology there when it comes to this pagan system of the gods. So it didn't matter if you went to the, the Canaanites or the Phoenicians or if you went to the Babylonians or the Assyrians. They, were all, they all had this concept of the male and female father, mother, God, right? And that's the same thing you're going to find in the Roman system. So when we fast forward to this time with Constantinople, they are not going to necessarily get rid of all their ancient systems of worshiping pagan gods, right? They weren't going to get rid of Saturnalia, which is a week-long orgy that occurs at the time that we call Christmas. And Rome was not going to get rid of that. They weren't going to get rid of the bowels of holly to go along with it. They weren't going to get rid of the mistletoe that you kiss under, because that's how you get an orgy going. You kiss under that. Of course, it's nothing to do with Christianity or Christ or the Bible. These are just all Roman, ancient Roman, pagan, religious rituals and, and features that carry on today in what we call Catholic Christianity. All right, So we here obviously carry on the regular beliefs and gospel of the first church Christians. So you're talking about the old Christians of the way. And the old Christians of the way are the original first Christian, first century Christians who are ultimately going to be being persecuted by Rome. They're the ones who were persecuted to death constantly and uh, crucified and tortured and fed to the animals. You know, the, the, the ancient legend of the Christians, Polycarp, etc. So after we go through several centuries of just 
basically spreading the church because the more blood of Christians you spill, the more the church spreads and the more people relate to it. And the more people hear the gospel and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, so over the time, the only way that the, Rome, the satanically inspired system of Rome could come to co-opt Christianity was to get some defunct, low-educated, rich individuals in the empire near Constantinople who would, you know, who would come in and break bread and make peace and declare that uh, not only was Constantinople going to worship Sol Invictus, the invincible sun god, but he was going to worship. We'll put up statues of Jesus in gold with like a flaming sun halo around his head. It, it won't be Saul Invictus anymore. It'll be Jesus Christ. So you just remember that, okay? It's the same thing that happened uh, with Constantinople when it fell to uh, Islam, right? Now it's Istanbul and the great, the great cathedral to Jesus Christ, the great cathedral to Roman Catholic Christianity has now become a, a mosque, right? So you just paint over the, uh, the icons of Christianity and you just put some mosque... So you put some quotes from the Quran up there, right? Well, it's the same thing that happened with the Christianity under Constantine. They just they just brought the Christians in, put a couple quick Christian quotes on the wall, and just redecorated. And uh, this is a this is a hermeneutic change that they uh, just didn't not pick up on. So that's what we're trying to point out as we go forward in time is just the the change in the underlying doctrine and power structure of the church, because by the time that Constantinople Constantine is going to take over, we're going to move forward in time several centuries, and we're going to see that eventually these other patriarchies, these other high priests and grand bishops of the other patriarchies of the world are going to be gone. Obviously, the Muslims are going to destroy Alexandria and burn the libraries of Alexandria and the entire city to the ground. And you're going to see that ultimately Constantinople itself, another patriarchy, another center of the Christian church around the world and the center of civilization is also going to be destroyed by Islam. And so Islam is going to get around to destroying lots of patriarchies, but just not the Roman one, right? Because you're going to find out that Islam and the patriarchy of Rome historically have a grand bargain. And this is, this is occult knowledge to the deepest level. And even if you got up into 25 degrees of Freemason club, you still wouldn't learn this stuff, okay? This is just what we're telling you. You can say, well, that doesn't jive with the history I, I learned in, in my you know, community college course, so I just don't believe you. You don't have to believe it. This is the fundamental truth of the occult history that's there. I can't go back in time machine like Marty McFly and witness all this, but I'm just letting you know this is what the suppressed historical narrative is that you're never allowed to hear. And it should be so horrifyingly uh, offensive. The truth is so blasphemous that, you know, I should have my head just chopped right off, you know, just for talking about this stuff. But we're going to go forward. We're going to try to peel back the layers of this historically and show you over time. And just some articles, some videos, some information here. But little by little, we're going to show you how it is we get up to this period some thousand years later after the time, 1200 years later after the time of Constantine, where you're going to have a, a Martin Luther, a monk in, in the Roman religious perspective, who's going to come out and recognize scripturally how it is that the, the system of Roman imperialism became a system of religio-cultic dominion that uses Christ as a veneer and claims to render powers from Christ in heaven to administer civil authority here on earth. So it's a pretty big, it's a pretty big um, step for the, the Bishop of Rome and for the city of Rome and the ancient system of imperialism, of imperial Rome to take, which is the, they're kind of going to forego the, the, the previous centuries of sending out their legions to conquer areas by military force and taxation, etc. But now they're going to just focus solely on the process of controlling the monopoly of spiritual thinking and religious and philosophical erudition, and, and by the process of controlling the conscience of the world and the conscience of civilizations and regions and nations and the conscience of men considering their their feelings of guilt over sin over their needs for repentance over their 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 desire our desire as humans to find a way to find absolution not that you can get it from a priest in Rome but to find it and to and to experience the love of God and the, and the the freeing of our sins and to have some kind of 
you know, what do they offer? A penance, a penance, a way out, you know, a thing you can do to, to mea culpa, to make up for what you've done wrong. So th- these are the, these are the weapons of ro- modern warfare of the Roman system. And so you have to get into this idea of the demonic and of, of the, of the diabolical, because here in this controversy, someone's wrong. The Roman church is going to paint all the scattered and divergent and separated churches of the Reformation and of the, the churches who are not utterly enthralled to Rome, right? The churches like the Gallicans or the Huguenots over time, or back in the day, the original uh, old Christians of the way, who were the original Christians who were fed to the lions in, in front of the, the Roman Colosseums and persecuted and burned. They were burned alive as torches, you know, far before Rome used to burn them at the stake, right? But it's all the same thing. You have to understand, you've got to begin to recognize that a few six, seven hundred years doesn't really change the stripes of the of the beast. So and that beast is just absolute Roman authority, absolute Roman imperialism, and absolute religio-cultic domination by Rome. So that's what Santa Claus represents. That's what reindeer represent. You know, pitter-pattering on the roof as Santa comes down this chimney. Lots of places in the world don't have chimneys. I mean, I live in Florida. We don't have chimneys because it's hot. <laughs> Nobody needs to burn anything here. I don't know how Santa gets in the houses here. But, you know, of course, that whole concept of chimneys is for people up north. And the idea of a sleigh. I mean, you can't really pull a sleigh around here. There's no snow. You know, so we're, we're going to dissolve and collapse all of your mythologies. And, 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 if, and, if, and if the truth will kill you, then we'll let you die. Okay? Because we're here to get at the truth. And we don't care who it hurts or who it bothers or whose precious feelings are going to get caught up in it. Because we're not here to, you know, defend lies and mythos and fakery. Right? And we're not here to defend demonic anti-christian principles which is what the pope is he is an anti-christian principle so let's go forward here in this undertaking as we do part two of the roman papacy is the antichrist so in order for us to really make the point we're going to just turn to a very interesting discussion here on the war room with steve bannon and of course we know we're, we're confronting this rising roman catholic nationalism in america and you can see on both sides of the political uh, dialectic here, you can see that we have uh, highly placed elites, very wealthy Roman Catholics, uh, you know, like Democrats, like John Kerry, who's also a skull and bonesman out of Yale, and uh, Nancy Pelosi, whose uh, father was attached to organized crime and mafioso activities, which are, of course, connected with, the, with Rome and Italy itself as uh, a dynamic of the nobility and the elites there, uh, the elites and the aristocracy in Italy, obviously connected with Rome and the Vatican. So if you have highly insulated crime lords and criminal syndicates out of Italy, you know that they're extensions of Vatican power, just like Nancy Pelosi. But then on the right side of the uh, Hegelian dialectic, you have the, the right Hegelians, right, who are there to, who are also Roman Catholics, like Steve Bannon, Kevin McCarthy, the Speaker of the House, also a Roman Catholic, goes in with Joe Biden on uh, the during the Feast of Lent, you know, to get the little ashes on the head, get the little the the X, you know, on the on the head with, with the ashes, the ancient uh, pagan and Babylonian Egyptian ritual, right? The esoteric praxis of the astro theologians of of the prehistory, and of course we who are holding to the Bible and to the Scriptures, who aside with Martin Luther. And believe in the the Brit Hadashah, the New Testament, and to take that writing, sola scriptura, never refuted, and the authority of that written scripture and the faith that arises out of the hearing of that word, we are the Christians of the gospel, of the biblical faith of Jesus Christ here in America. And we are Baptists and Presbyterians, and we are Lutherans and Pentecostals and Methodists, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? And those are the various denominations and groups and of course, it, it d- depended on what language and what country you were in. So for many, uh, the Calvinists were in, in France, and the Hussites, or the followers of John Huss, were in England. And over there in, in Germany was Martin Luther, who was discovering all this and reading all this and discovering the truth because he was literate and he could read various different languages and he could understand the Greek and he could understand the, the plain, common meaning of the gospel and those who are saved 
by the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. And so that that is something that does not translate in the ritual of Rome, which requires people to practice a certain hour and certain liturgy at a certain day and to submit to absolute authority of the priest to craft and have no place in the actual practice of faith other than just to be an observer and a communicant, right? Who just receives the offshooting of, of merit, you know, through the, the practice of turning the wafer into the body of Jesus Christ, which is some kind of magical trick when you think about it. And if you go back and read the scriptures and you just get the King James Bible out and read it and read the red letters and just read the letters of Paul and all that, you just, there's no room for Roman Catholicism in there. So that's really what we're getting at. And so to establish some of these points, let's go farther here with Steve Bannon. How did, uh, talk to us about the first century church. What was it about Christianity that was different? What was it about Christianity that caused the first persecution, the great persecution and everything that led up to that? Because in understanding that, you can then begin to understand the coming Christian persecution. That's essentially the thesis of your book, right? You must go back in time and understand what differentiated this from other religions, what differentiated this as a faith, to see that the, re- the strong reaction of the Roman state against it leading up to the great persecution, sir. The, the, the Roman Empire was all about assimilation. It was all about, it, it was a very tolerant state as far as it goes, in the sense that as long as you can integrate your beliefs, your belief system, your religion, into this greater pluralist Roman society, as long as you're willing also to sacrifice to the emperor and to burn incense to the emperor, as long as this is part of it, you can have your little cults and your rituals and your and your diverse things. We're very open-minded, but your allegiance must first be to the state and it must be to Caesar, who is divine. And Christians obviously could not abide by this. And it was primarily uh, their higher allegiance to God that in the end put them in a situation of necessary conflict with the Roman state. The other group that somehow escaped this, and, and if scholars give an answer to why they escaped it, was were the Jews living within the Roman Empire. And the reason was they would technically have been illegal as well because of their unwillingness, obviously, to sacrifice to other gods other than Yahweh. Uh, the difference was that whereas the Jews were content to kind of keep to themselves. They were not a proselytizing faith. They were not going out there to make converts. They were not preaching on the streets. They were not uh, bringing people into the fold. The Christians were the exact opposite. So you had Christians, and this really alarmed uh, powers within the Roman Empire, whether they were emperors themselves or local governors at different times, the persecutions ebbed and flowed. Um, But the problem was so many people were converting. Christianity was so powerful and so attractive that you had people from the very poorest to to the the patricians and the very wealthy. Uh, It was something that spanned every class and every uh, social group so that you had soldiers and you had politicians and you had artists and you had literary figures all being very attractive uh, and coming into the Christian fold. And so this was something that really caught the attention of the, the, the powers of the Roman Empire and was looked upon as something that could not be tolerated. Um, and again, there were times when it became extraordinarily hostile when uh, they would hunt down Christians wherever they could find them. At other times, even some of the more considered to be more enlightened and benevolent, uh, the emperors like Trajan. Uh, Trajan's basically, uh, Tr- Trajan's philosophy was and he writes this to Pliny the Elder in a letter that we still have. He says, you know, don't don't hunt them down. But, you know, if they are brought before, if there are complaints made, if you find out about them, bring them in and make sure that they are willing to sacrifice the emperor. Make sure they're willing to abjure this higher allegiance to their God or they shall be they shall be prosecuted uh, and they will be put to death. And this is something they, that even under the more enlightened emperors, this happened. One of the things about the book is very chilling is to show that some of the the emperors, and it's almost like the modern world, they understand these Christians have the deep faith, but they're kind of saying, hey, all you got to do is light some incense. All you have to do, you don't have to give up what you really believe. You just have to light some incense. You just have to be performative and we'll look the other way and you can go along and lead your life. And it's obviously more important to lead your life and have your community if you just do this performative. 
and about the Christians has said, I can't do that. That is, that is to the core of it. It's very chilling because many of the Roman emperors, many of the Roman officials make a quite modern argument, right? They just, just be performative. Just, just do this so that we can get past it because we're not, we're not that interested in, in, in snuffing you out. We just want to get past this. And what's amazing is the Christian has said, I'm not doing that. That that to light one you know one thing of incense in front of a a, a statue, not just a, po- a polytheism, uh, but a statue of uh, of Augustus Caesar or whatever you know whatever emperors at the time cuts to the core of my being. It's it's very chilling that the Christians had the option and were dangled often not all the time, but were dangled the, the option of just be performative and go about your business. They said no, that that it's performative to you, but it cuts to the core of my faith and I won't do it. And they were then. And, and they told him, hey, you're going to have the most heinous tortures if you don't. And they said, hey, it, it's, it, it is what it is. Tom Williams. Yeah, and this, unfortunately, this So we just offer in that very fascinating discussion just to make the point that this is the context of the biblical scriptures here and how we observe the fact that over the course of time, these emperors of Rome became so diabolical and so obsessed with their the merger of their absolute dominion and their religio-cultic initiation. And this has everything to do with the process of the, the fall of Rome as a republic as Julius Caesar came to power as an absolute dictator and absolute emperor for the first time. Because before Julius Caesar, as we always said, there was no emperor of Rome. It was a republic. So as we see Rome fall from a republic into the absolute tyranny of Julius Caesar and then Octavian after him and, and Trajan and so on and so forth, etc., on down the line of succession of emperors, you can see that they embrace this idea of themselves as the civil imperator and the pontifex maximus. And as pontifex maximus, they have these new superimposed priestly and spiritual powers of dominion in the spiritual world. And that's why people had to make sacrifices to them. That's why the emperors became divine. That's why the emperors had statues and were worshiped as gods and and why the Christians refused. And so this is an important backdrop when you understand that the emperors of Rome uh, uh, up through Constantine, who were the cult of the emperors, who were religious deities unto themselves, ultimately became the papacy. So the Roman Pope is the extension of the emperors of old and this new divinity and this title of Pontifex Maximus. It's, it's important for you to understand that. And the Christians today still refuse to worship the cult of the emperors. They still refuse, and I refuse to burn incense to Santa Claus or to the popes or to, to the Easter Bunny or to, to whatever they, whatever performative action, whatever performative little, you know, sign uh, that, or little modicum of deference that we would have to the Vatican. We won't. We won't have it. And we won't join the rest of you Roman Catholic nationalists and whipping up a furor across the country is what you're really doing. And so on the left side, you have the left Hegelians and Papists controlled by the Jesuits. And on the right side, you have the right Hegelians and Papists controlled by the Jesuits, just like Steve Bannon, who are just trying to whip everyone into an absolute frenzy. And it's a, and I have all the same arguments and, and they're just, of course, the individuals like the, you know, in the war room here are really the controlled opposition, whether they know it or not, whether they think they're doing it for the good of America or not. And, and Mark Houck, you know, he was arrested at his house and submitted to go, go be arrested to, by those, all those FBI agents and their long guns or however it went. But he can't take it personally because he's a Roman papist and says Hail Marys. He has to understand that the cause of liberty has to be worn by all Americans altogether. So that's what separates these individuals like Mark Houck from the the rest of Roman Catholicism worldwide. So Mark Houck is against, he's trying to save his country and he's trying to stand up for unborn children and trying to stop abortion and and trying to vote against all the illegal immigrants pouring across the the border. But Mark Houck fails to understand that the Jesuits have made arrangements for all those millions and millions of illegal immigrants and criminals and escapees from the psych wards and all that, all all those individuals pouring over the border, those are the plans of the Roman papists. Those are the plans of the geopoliticians at the Vatican. And this is their system of of warfare. And so that's that's what these uh, Catholics, these pro-American, right Hegelian Catholics in America don't understand, is that America is not designed to be saved. America always was a Protestant republic. It always was a extension of the Reformation and of the liberalization 
of society so that people were out of the dark ages and into the Renaissance and could read and write and have their Bibles and the Gutenberg printing press and all that. Those are all the, the monstrosities of technology that were to be hated and to be feared. So now we're in this present age where they're trying to bring America into absolute ruin and decimation. And those individuals like Mark Houck have, have failed to understand that they're on the wrong side of the history that's being created by the Vatican here. And the, the, the history, the plan for history is that America is to go down in flames. There's to be lots of abortions. There's to be lots of people jump over the border to replace these old uh, Americans with social security cards and birth certificates who have been totally indebted by trillions and trillions of dollars through Washington, D.C., right? So when they go and borrow trillions and trillions of dollars, they're borrowing that against your social security number, right? Well, all these individuals that are pouring over the border, they don't have any of that stuff. They don't have birth certificates or social security. They don't have any of the encumbrances, accoutrements of debt slavery, right? They're just going to walk around here and go with the flow and take vaccine shots. And if they roll out in a marrow or a new money system or collapse the Federal Reserve note in here, that you know they're just going to go with the flow. It's these old individuals, these old uh, whiteies from Europe who were escaping the Inquisition who came here because of the, the hope of the Bible and the Protestant Reformation, the Puritans coming over here, right? The whole point of that was to establish a free country away from the tyranny of popes and, and kings, the absolute despotism of the old world, medieval world order. And we came here to, to have an American Protestant republic. Well, the plan for this place now is to go down in ruins. And so it's time for all these other Catholics here to, to recognize if they're fighting for American liberty, if they're in the Alamo here of America, and they're fighting for the, the, the last vestiges of the, the constitutional republic here in America to survive, they're fighting against the Jesuits and they're fighting against their own Vatican. And if you do that, you're not really a, a Catholic anymore. Now you're a Protestant. Now you're a liberal reformist. Now you're a Lutheran. But you, you can go and say your Hail Marys, but because you're separated from the authority of the Vatican and from the papacy... You're no longer a part of it. You're just over here with us. So just get used to it. So with this project, we have to take our time. We're going to have to go into some the thicket here a little bit and to establish some of the, the facts and it's the, establish the, the background history of what we've been doing on this entire show, too. And uh, we've had to turn to various authors and lecturers and PhDs and uh, pastors and professors and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, podcasters galore. Everything we can do to bring about a clear articulation of the various facts that we're trying to establish here. So what we have to really do is show you how the papacy really, in its totality, is not a religious organization. It's a cultic organization. It's an esoteric priestcraft. It's an it's a ancient Egyptian and Babylonian praxis of black magic, you know. It's, it's very many things, but f f to understand it in, in, in a s singular sense in the English language as Christianity is asinine and utterly, um, obviously, idiotic. So we have to go and do our legwork here and show you how these different organizations associated with the aristocracy and the, the black nobility of Italy, for instance, or the, the knighthood orders of the nobility, of the aristocracy, of the, the bloodline families who are who have the, the divine right to rule over the peasants and the citizens. So you have the, the, the powerhouses, the royal houses still in effect, having, been, having lost a lot of their power and their dominions to this movement of popular sovereignty and democratic republicanism that you see here in America where people vote and choose their own government. And we don't have liege lords and kings and noblemen and knights riding around that we have to bow to and et cetera. And of course, we don't. We, in America, we don't even accept titles. We don't accept noble titles and the trappings thereof. So we have completely separated ourselves and all the political chains that uh, bound us to obey our noble masters and the royal families of Europe. So having said all that, let's see how these power players, these uh, papal knighthood orders, these occult Freemasonic Jacobin lodges, and how the push of the Illuminati and the Hegelian thesis forward in time is to ultimately consume and destroy economically, demographically, and politically in every other way, socially and culturally in every other way, the American project of free men and to descend them into servitude. So in order to see how that develops over time and how the, the connections between the CIA and the papacy 
and the criminal organized crime rackets of the the Italian mob and et cetera, how that all ties with the Vatican and with Washington, D.C. So in order to discuss that further and to establish the geopolitical imperium of Vatican City and its sovereignty as it extends out and seeks political and economic power, recovered uh, after this uh, first Lateran Treaty that you saw in 1933. And if you go back in time, you can see that it was around 1799 when Napoleon sent down his general, as we always say, to basically lock up the Pope and to shut him down. And he was uh, put on house arrest and his, his political power, his civil authority as a king, his spiritual and temporal powers as a imperial bishop of Rome and the vicar of Christ over the whole world, all that super added mumbo jumbo, all that was put to an end by Napoleon. And of course, the, the papacy, the Pope would lose many of his papal states and, and, and his territories and, and Italy. And you can see that a lot of this is being put back together for him uh, with the EU and with the, the Rome Treaty, etc. You can see that the papal states and a lot of the, the papal powers are being restored. And of course, the Vatican has re restored its civil and spiritual power and its sovereignty to rule over its subjects like a divine king. So you can see that the resurgence of the divine right of kings and nobility and uh, King Charles the the, uh, the third over there are important indicators that the the rise and the return of the papacy to power is underway. So let's listen to Jay's analysis real quick to hear more about the the background and clandestine reassertion of papal authority and dominion over the world. So here's some of the uh, players, key players, and I'm gonna we already did a video on this. I'm gonna re repeat all this. Uh, a lot of the original figures are out of the OSS. We've got uh, Dulles, Swiss director of the OSS, director of the CIA in 1953, Bill, Wild Bill Donovan, first director of the OSS, uh, and then creator of the World Commerce Corporation, famous OSS front. Reinhard Galen, the famous uh, tiny mustache man general who commands the uh, werewolves, the first Gladio unit. Galen, of course, being the famous tiny mustache man guy from the SS. You might have heard of that. James uses Angleton. Famous uh, counterintelligence officer uh, of the OSS and rabid, um, well, we'll just, we'll just say, obviously, he has a long time uh, involvement in things probably related to JFK, these kinds of things. Paul Hellowell, OSS officer, and the first to come up with the idea of funding black ops via smoking a little bit of Terrence McKenna. I'm just talking about drugs in general for those that don't get what I'm talking about. Lucky Luciano, of course, the famous uh, mafiosi uh, who was recruited by the Office of Naval Intelligence to funnel money via uh, the heroin trade. Paul VI, uh, Vatican Undersecretary, uh, who made first uh, deals and alliances with the OSS and linking them to the Sicilian Mafia. Uh, Don Calo, Operation Husky, Vito Genovese, uh, Lucky Luciano's right-hand man. Uh, Pius XII, the first pontiff to form an alliance with the CIA via William Colby and via Gladio. Uh, Colonel Spellman, leader of the Sovereign Order of the Knights of Malta and uh, CIA recruit. William Colby, obviously longtime uh, trad cat, Vatican insider, uh, head of the CIA, Phoenix program, Operation Gladio. And then, of course, he met an untimely demise. Legal counsel at Nugenhan Bank, CIA front bank and future director of the CIA, Mikhail Sindona. The nexus between the CIA, the Mafia, and the Vatican. And, of course, he's the famous character who ends up in a giant scam collapse of uh, the Ambrosia, Banco d'Ambrosiano. And then later, the Vatican Bank and its collapse and the eight shell corporations that the Vatican had created. Uh, let's see. Giulio Andriotti was uh, Ital Italian prime minister and member of the P2 Lodge. The P2 Lodge is going to play a big role in this because that is the secret society nexus of uh, fascist Masons, believe it or not. Yes, that was a thing. You might think, well, but didn't Mussolini boot the Masons? Yes, he did. Uh, but this is after World War II, and this is a CIA operation of fascist Masons in Italy. The P2 Lodge, very public, very well known, not a made-up thing, 100% history. Go look it up. Propaganda Due Lodge. And that was the Masonic Mafia Mod Lodge run by Licio Gelli, another one of the key figures that will play into the Vatican Bank scandal. And that will lead eventually to the uh, assassination of Roberto Calvi, the Vatican banker. Uh, 
the Vatican banker, the religious leader that leads the, that runs the Vatican Bank, is the known as uh, Monsignor Archbishop Paul Marcinkus, the head of the uh, Institute of Religious Works, which is the Vatican Bank. Ted Theodore Shackley, a CIA operative who runs the heroin trade in Southeast Asia, plays a key part in the uh, attempt on JP2. Henry Kissinger, master geopolitical strategist uh, and one of the strategists behind Gladio. Father Felix Morleone, a former SS official and ecumenist and creator of the Pro Deo Intelligence and Education Network. So that's actually a front. Michael Ledeen. Uh, U.S. Uh, CIA operative closely tied to P2. Zbigniew New Brzezinski, uh, NSA, a national security advisor, obviously, to uh, many presidents. He's a, he's a Kissinger type of figure. Juan Perón, the thrice-elected president of Argentina, who was inducted into the P2 Lodge by Licio Gelli. Pope Francis, you probably have heard of him. Have you heard of Pope Francis, anybody? You know what I'm talking about? Old Papa Frank. Operation Condor, the CIA's operations in Latin America, which involved and were directly connected to Papa Frank. John Paul II, uh, who is close to the CIA via all of the uh, funding that comes through Opus Dei uh, and uh, Solidarity. So, as we saw, a big key, as admitted by the neocon writer, Spies in the Vatican, right? The CIA money that came in the tune, to the tune of tens of millions of dollars through Opus Dei, uh, through William Colby, etc., others later, to the Vatican and to Solidarity. Solidarity was Lecavalesa's movement, which helped bring the wall down, and John Paul II was a key figure working with the CIA and Lecavalesa to do that. Now you might think, oh, but doesn't that make John Paul a hero and a saint and a good guy? No, it does not. In fact, he is a dupe and a tool of these people that's the point and that that's why vatican ii happens that's why there's so much americanism and ecumenism at vatican ii did you think it was all theology nerds so that's just a nice uh, little piece of the picture here that jay dyer is going to present to us. And of course, like I said, you can check the show notes, go through all this information yourself, take your time, make sure you be thorough and, and look it over and we'll have to re revisit Jay Dyer's work repeatedly, I'm sure. But the point is here to point out to you that despite the rose-colored, historically revisionist propaganda surrounding the Vatican and the papacy, you have to recognize the reality is, is that they are a geopolitical, imperialist power structure that's devoted since its inception thousands of years ago to utterly control the world. I don't know if it has a central consciousness that makes it aware of its preoccupation and the prerogative here that seems to leave behind the old world of being compelled by Zeus to be world tyrannists, to now yeah, being compelled by supposedly Jesus Christ and the authority derived from being the vicar thereof, to have some kind of world government or world dominion or Roman imperial structure by which the whole world is governed by a pseudo-Christian priestcraft. Okay, so that's kind of what we're dealing with. And behind the scenes there, you can see that the, the mafia, all the, all the power players are there, the Knights of Malta, the undersecretaries of the Vatican. So you can see that the Vatican is run like a government. It, it's, it's, a, it's like any other kingdom. It has its privy council. It has its hierarchy of authority and breakdown. And it has, a, just like the president of the United States, has a, a cabinet of secretaries working away. And, uh, and those same undersecretaries will eventually rise up, file up in the order of the matrix, up to the top. And eventually those undersecretaries and altar boys eventually become the Pope. And they're voted by the Curia, the College of Cardinals, a vote to make that happen. So this is really the kind of underpinning of what we're supposed to accept as the the breath of the Holy Spirit and, and so on and so forth. And they go in there and they, they put the black smoke or the white smoke. You know, it depends on which time, you know, which, which smoke pops out to, to, to tell you whether they have picked a pope. And of course, this is supposed to have some kind of intense spiritual magnitude and uh, aftermath on the on the worshipers and the faithful Catholics around the world are supposed to be overcome with 
charisms of joy because they selected a new uh, antichrist, a new a new leader of the imperial geopolitical military that these people like to call a church. So it's committed to persecuting the Christians, just like the original version, a uh, 1.0 of the Roman monstrosity would uh, hunt down and burn the Christians. And then, of course, Rome 2.0 with the new papacy, papal overlord, now is the emperor, still Pontifex Maximus, nothing's changed there. And they, of course, want to go through the Dark Ages and uh, and hunt all through France, the Albigensians and the Waldensians and the Gallicans and the Huguenots and the, the Wycliffe followers of John Wycliffe, the Lutherans, the followers of, uh, of Luther or Martin Luther there in Germany, or the Calvin Calvinists in France. One way or the other, the, the Roman system of imperial religious divinity and absolute power and absolute despotism will ultimately find a way to murder the true Christians and the true believers of God. So we're just, that's what we're trying to do here, guys. We're trying to get you to wake up and leave behind the highway to hell that Rome represents and find the, the narrow and hidden pathway that leads to Jesus Christ. And it's you have to find that the path that leads to life is narrow and, and few find it. So let's let's be part of the few here, guys. And let's be some of the ones who find the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So in order to really go back into this issue, let's go back over here just a little more. Listen to Jay Dyer a little more. We'll talk about the the intelligence agencies and the the collapse of the uh, the Vatican Bank collapse and the, the P2 Lodge, the Stay Behind Networks, the Operation Gladio. And we can really see all that, uh, all those, the realities of all that come into fruition now. And you can, it doesn't take very long to recognize the World Economic Forum is really the tip of the spear with the elitists to try to basically enslave the rest of the world and, and, and wrap us and thrall us to their economic servitude and their devices. right it's now a time for a word from our awesome sponsor wendy's boutique limited wendyslimited.com and uh, wendyslimited.com is offering the hottest new designer trends and brand name couture fashion styles so you have to hear about wendy's boutique wendyslimited.com wendyslimited.com now has designer women's apparel and fine jewelry sexy boutique fashions very best prices online and you know that at wendyslimited.com uh, they know what a woman is, uh, what a woman really is, right? So if you're a beautiful woman or if you know a beautiful woman, and if you don't, stop listening to this show, okay? Right now, just stop. But if you happen to know a beautiful woman and you are a beautiful woman, you have to know about wendyslimited.com. So these are the, the sexiest boutique fashions anywhere, very best prices online, beautiful luxury products, guaranteed authentic guaranteed no chinese knockoffs ever so this is the real deal this is the real real the legit best prices hottest couture gear fragrances we had tom ford shades great deal on the tom ford shades everybody loves tom ford shades so you can expect to find gucci apparel hermes shoes Prada jewelry, all at wendyslimited.com. And you got to remember, wendyslimited.com is really now famous for canceling Balenciaga when it mattered, right? So we're not having any of that over here. This is a woman-owned enterprise, all-American, family-run organization, wendyslimited.com, wendyslimited.com. you got to come join the craze. Hottest new designer trends, guys. Wendy's Boutique Limited, we need your support. And uh, she's been courageous to support the show, wendyslimited.com. So let's hear more. We, in order to understand how it is that the system of the Vatican and the papacy is truly the Antichrist, we have to understand all the, the secret, redacted, classified documents, the, the, the backstory of the CIA and the Vatican Bank and the P2 Black Lodge and the, and the Pope and all, all those stories, right? It's the, it's the modern story of the Illuminati. So it's, it's really the, 
the exposure of the Illuminati in 1773. It's it's the modern exposure of the Illuminati with the P2 Lodge in in the 1980s. And so in order for us to go forward here, let's just listen to and learn a, more, a little more about the whole issue. We, we slapped them with a $4 million fine when they made $300 million. <laughs> It's comical. And what's even more comical and crazy to understand is the level of income that the global drug trade makes, which will blow your mind. Where does all that money go? It goes to this stuff. It goes to all of these black operations. And by you sitting there and saying, well, if this was all happening, it would come out. People, It comes out all the time. I've been watching and studying and tracking these things since 2003. So Williams goes on to talk about that the Vatican Bank is a perfect bank as a cover for these kinds of operations. For one, the Vatican Bank doesn't have a paper trail. And so in 1947, William Colby has the great idea to uh, be making a direct alliance with Pius XII. So this is right prior to Vatican II. For the purpose of giving, funneling $65 million from the CIA into the Vatican Bank. Now, William Colby's not yet head of the CIA. He's just the state, uh, CIA station chief in Rome at this time. So he's involved, obviously, in Gladio. Right? He's a key figure as the CIA's point man between the CIA and the Vatican with Pius XII. And Colby was a, you know, committed trad cat. We've covered the whole documentary, The Man Nobody Knew. I've recommended it millions of times. Again, people, you gotta, you got to educate yourself, okay? You need to educate yourself on this stuff. Because if you're still calling me a conspiracy theorist, that's on you. So the CIA then purchases essentially a gigantic chunk of control and influence in the Vatican Bank via this $65 million in 1948. That's amazing. And many of the key figures at this time that were involved in uh, the U.S. government, these operations, happened to be Roman Catholics and Trad Cats. Okay, and I'm not knocking these people because I'm sure they thought they were doing the right thing and they were just, oh, we got to fight the commies, right? Now, there's a lot of propaganda that was going on that the commies were going to take over the world, but that was exaggerated. I'm not saying that commies are good. We've done countless talks critiquing, criticizing, dissecting Marxism, socialism, communism, but that does not mean, this is what nobody can seem to get to their dumb heads, that does not mean that monopoly capitalism is good. Monopoly capitalism is not freedom and free markets like you think. Monopoly capitalism is oligarchic capitalism that is allied with Fabian, so it's Fabian socialism. So it is neither fascism, it's not uh, democracy, it's neoliberalism with Fabian socialism. They're essentially the same thing. Funny, too, at this time, uh, Cold War is just now kicking off. So this is 1947. This is right when Cold War kicks off. Cardinal Spellman, who we saw is probably, uh, he was probably compromised, by the way, um, begins an American Vatican-sponsored campaign to encourage all Italian-Americans to vote against Togliatti, who was the communist person running in the elections in Italy. I'm not saying the communists are good. I'm just trying to tell you what's going on and spellman is told to do this via the cia right and so that they the roman catholic church mounts this giant campaign with catholic celebrities frank sinatra bing crosby gary cooper and they all push the christian democrat party but the christian democrat party was uh basically bought and funded with this cia vatican money Pius XII realized that he would need millions more dollars from Uncle Sam since the uh, Communist Party in Italy had now uh, gained about 50% of the population. So in order to defeat the, the, the Red Menace, this is where we begin to get the ideas for Gladio. 1945, the Pope has private audiences with Wild Bill Donovan. Pius XII, privately meeting with Bill Donovan. Bill Donovan, by the way, ends up converting to Catholicism. 
obviously. In the months after the 1948 elections, the CIA dumped $65 million of black funds into the Vatican Bank. Where does this money come from? Well, guess what? we got to fund it with something. This is where the organized crime and the drug lanes come in, and this is where the Teamsters and Jimmy Hoffa comes in. So the Teamsters and Jimmy Hoffa are allied with organized crime, and they, the, the mobsters come and tell Jimmy Hoffa because he, he runs the Teamsters, we need your logistics and your unions to be on our side because we're going to start bringing in the products to fund these operations. I'm talking about the products as in the smoking a little Terrence McKenna brought into Jersey, uh, Boston, uh, New Orleans, the, the port cities. So if you're wondering, well, how's the Vatican get away with this? I mean, is there an entity that will? No, there is no entity that investigates the Vatican because due to the Lateran Treaty, the Vatican has made a sovereign city-state. Now, another bank is set up via these goons at this time, which will be a very important bank in this whole story, known as the Banco d'Ambrosiano, named after St. Ambrose. Imagine in naming a giant scam drug bank after St. Ambrose. But that is the logic of these unbelievably fraudulent... I mean, it's worse than the money changers in the temple. I mean, this is a whole other level beyond this. So we're wrapping up hour one here of this particular episode, and we want to just do a little more as we close out here with Jay Dyer. I want to just go back through his catalog, uh, which is immense, and we'll just listen to some more of his thoughts and explications about the Roman papacy as it takes on the characteristics and powers and civil powers unto itself of a, a sovereign nation state incorporated within the walls of Vatican City itself. First thing that comes to mind about the Vatican is that the Vatican is uh, the world's oldest intelligence agency. A lot of people don't know that. They might think of the CIA or the NSA or something like that or MI6 when they think about intelligence agencies. But really, it's the Vatican that's been there for the longest that's been involved in this game. And if we go back to the uh, early Middle Ages, there was this time period when in, in early Christianity, there was a shift where the... The, when the Roman Empire fell uh, to the Visigoths, you had the rise of the papal, what's called the papal states. And this was the idea that the uh, Vatican could fill that cultural gap that was missing uh, now that the Roman Empire had collapsed. <clears throat> so this gave the opportunity for a lot of political power. And although that was kind of contrary to previous Christian uh, teaching and doctrine, the Vatican backed this up with a document known as the Donation of Constantine, which is a famous forgery. So we start to begin to see the capitulating, too, and the desire for a lot of political and geopolitical power. And this gets even stronger by the time of the early Middle Ages when we come to the what was called the Carolinian period with Charlemagne. Charlemagne wants to uh, have his own control over the Western Empire. There's already a Byzantine Empire in the East. And so Charlemagne gets the uh, Pope at that time to crown him the emperor of the West. And after that, we begin to have a lot more geopolitical influence in the Vatican. And then by the time of the uh, Renaissance period, the middle eight, uh, the early, the late middle ages, we get a lot of uh, really corrupt popes, a lot of nepotism. We get uh, the Borgias, we get Medicis, we get Alexander the sixth, who were very famous for their uh, corruption and their spy craft and all the above. Uh, and then by the time of the, uh, rise of the Jesuit order, we get a whole new uh, element of what you could call, I guess, a, a kind of intelligence, international intelligence agents works directly uh, and uh, answers only to the Pope. So this creates an atmosphere where there's just tremendous power, tremendous wealth, and tremendous opportunity for corruption. And we begin to have these entities known as the Vatican Bank, which uh, the Rothschilds are actually in the 1700s, the official bankers of the Vatican. But that Vatican hadn't yet created its own specific uh, institution. That comes later in the 20th century, known as what we call the Vatican Bank. So that brings us up to the 20th century, where we get really deep corruption that begins to be public through a lot of scandals. 
And by the time of the Cold War, these scandals are, are just sort of hinted at. But there's really this giant underground of a huge network that uh, gets exposed. It's known uh, in a lot of writings as Operation Gladio. And Gladio is really just this uh, alliance between organized crime uh, or the, the Italian Sicilian Mafia, the CIA, and the Vatican. And that's what leads to a lot of the corruption on a massive global scale that we know about today. And it's all tied into the Vatican Bank and it's all tied into the as much as they have. And so the LDS has for a long time had a really close relationship to the CIA. So it's the other way around. Like the CIA is who, again, sort of aids, co-ops and, and, and infiltrates a lot of Western religious institutions. And, uh, you know, for example, a lot of Mormon missionaries are known to, you know, the bit recruited into the CIA. So when they do their Mormon missionary work, uh, they have to do that, I think, two years. Every every Mormon every Mormon dude does two years of foreign missionary service. They're supposed to learn a foreign language and all that. A lot of those people are recruited into doing CIA work. So it's the other way around. Chief wants to know about the relationship between NATO and the Vatican. So NATO uh, is closely aligned with the Vatican precisely out of the, the Gladio operation. And so that's why I said, like, the P2 lodges that were established precisely for the recruitment and training of the stay-behind black ops networks and cells, they were aided. It was NATO that was doing this, basically. So the CIA was using NATO to train and arm and prepare a lot of these people and, and doing the, the black ops uh and the, the false flag operations through through NATO, so it, they're they're tied at the hip. Uh, so that's that's the connection there. Is is to, now I don't know that that NATO right now is necessarily it's it's basically the this inner the same people that tell Klaus Schwab what to do are the same people that tell Francis what to do. <laughs> so that's that's how this and those are the same people that run NATO. So that's how this works. <laughs>